Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome. I just finished talking with Michael Gordon about his new book, The Pseudoscience Wars, Emmanuel Velikovsky and the Birth of the Modern Fringe, and that was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2012. Now, this is a book that's really excellent on many levels and in many ways. It's not only really beautifully written, So the prose is really a pleasure to read through. This is a really pleasurable book to sit down with, but it's also really expertly organized. And the argument proceeds in a really clear and really carefully put together way. And you'll see over the course of the interview, certainly the beginning of the interview, that I was so struck by this that I asked um, Michael to talk a little bit about his process, what elements of his craft as a historian and his management of information actually let him produce such a clean and such a clear argument and so relatively quick um, at that. And his answer to that is actually really, really interesting. It's also a story that's just inherently gripping of a major protagonist, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who, if if he's known by people, is usually known as kind of the central figure in the history of pseudoscience. So he's known as a kind of grandmaster of pseudoscience, in particular for his work on his magnum opus, Worlds in Collision. Now, what this book really beautifully shows, and I'll I'll keep this brief because the interview is quite extensive, is that the category of pseudoscience is kind of contentless. Something doesn't become pseudoscience because of some kind of inherent quality of its truth or falsity, because of some sort of inherent quality of its content. Rather, the discourse of pseudoscience emerged from a very particular context, a very particular place in time in Cold War America between the 1950s and the 1980s. And Michael shows, I think really beautifully, the different strands that go into forming both the work itself by Velikovsky and also the different reactions that different communities had to his work and his responses to them. It's a fascinating story that says just as much about kinds of ways that notions of evidence have been constructed, ways of sort of notions of legitimation emerging in this context at particular times, as it does about the sciences and about history. It's a really beautifully written book, and it's a I had a great time um, talking with Michael about it. It's a really interesting interview, so I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Michael Gordon about his new book, The Pseudoscience Wars, Emanuel Velikovsky and the Birth of the Modern Fringe. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Michael, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. It's great to be here, Carla. So, Michael, this, let's get started by kind of talking a little bit about what brought you to this particular topic in this set of issues. Could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background? I, th- I know you started off working on the history of Russian science. Is that right? That's right. So um, how did you come to that to that field in general? And then we'll sort of move toward the topic of the book in particular. Uh, so I uh, entered college with a sense that I was going to be a physicist. I was 
pretty sure that was going to be the case, having no idea what it actually meant to be a physicist or whether I would like it. Uh, but what I knew I really liked to do was study history. Uh, so I enjoyed doing that in my spare time, but that wasn't obviously a real thing one was going to do. And then when I got to college, I found out there was a thing called the history of science, and I kind of fell into it and fell into it entirely. I spent all my time reading this stuff. But um, the kind of history that most attracted me when I was in my vocational I enjoy as a hobby reading history was Russian history. And by chance, I walked into a seminar on the history of Russian science, and that hooked me into the whole field. And so I started from there working. And in graduate school, I was exploring the history of Russian science in the period of Russian history I enjoy the most, which is late imperial Russia, the age of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And uh, it happens that one of the most significant things to emerge from Russian science, the periodic system of chemical elements, was born in that culture of that time. And so that's what I uh, started as my first major research project was delving into that. Now, even though the major protagonist or one of the major protagonists of the book is a Russian-born psychoanalyst, the topic of this book is actually quite different from that early field of your work. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to this context of sort of Cold War America um, from your earlier work, and what brought you to this topic in particular? Uh, it's a great question. There's there's several different strands, so bear with me while I sure. piece them together. Strand number one is the sort of research trajectory. After uh, working on Dmitry Mendeleev and the periodic system, I uh, stumbled, and it's actually literally stumbled into the history of the atomic bomb in the early Cold War. And I spent about 10 years working on questions related to the use of weapons over Hiroshima, the development of the Soviet atomic bomb. And that got me uh, extremely interested in Cold War America, which was one of the things that I, I suppose I'd always been interested in, in the kinds of fiction I read and the kinds of histories I became attracted to. So that's one strand. I was primed to think about Cold War America. The second strand is an interest in what uh, has been called the demarcation problem, the problem of how you differentiate science from bunk, pseudoscience, crackpot theories, whatever you want to call it. This is a problem that has really philosophers spent many, many generations struggling with. And it was one that when I was uh, a kid, a middle schooler, I got very interested in. Obviously, I wasn't reading the philosophers, but I was reading books about UFOs, about uh, things like Bigfoot. I was extremely interested in these theories that uh, all my science teachers said were silly, but that people were still very passionate about, seemed to believe they had evidence for. So I'd long been interested in, first of all, how people try to make arguments for those kinds of theories and make them compelling, and also why the establishment or mainstream scientists are so upset about them. So that was strand two. I, I've long been primed to think about issues of demarcation. In fact, in the book on Mendeleev, there's a chapter about seances and the way scientists dealt with other scientists who were partisans of seances as part of this debate about what counts as science and what counts as pseudoscience. So I was primed for that. And then uh, I was working at my job and I opened my homepage, which happens to be Princeton University's homepage. And there's a stream of uh, news announcements that comes down. And the top news announcement was Princeton University opens the papers of Emanuel Belikovsky. And my first reaction, which was surely most people's first reaction to this, was, who's Emanuel Belikovsky? Because I actually hadn't heard of him. That's not quite right. I had heard of him. I just didn't know who he was. Because when I was a kid looking through 
uh, the shelves of my local public library for the latest UFO book uh, or associated books, there was a book called The Velikovsky Affair. And I remember it distinctly. It had a red binding. And I never picked it up, but I was interested in it because I was interested in Russians. And that sounded Russian to me. And it was in the section that I was clearly interested in. And I saved it in my mind as something to look at later. And so I clicked on the link saying, oh, that, I wonder what that's about. And then I read that we acquired this archive, which I expect we'll talk about a little later, that the university had acquired this archive. And I thought I would delve into it and maybe write an article. And then a couple of years later, I emerged with this book. So, uh, so the, it, it happened that he fit the demarcation uh, issue, which I thought about for many years, and the Cold War issue with the history of science all in one. And so it, it just happened to be a pleasant convergent of circ- convergence of circumstances. Great. And you're hitting on, in that sort of brief introduction, a lot of the issues that we'll talk about later on. So this is actually particularly great, including the archive. And the archive, actually, the issue of the archive, which we will talk about in a little bit, I hope, um, gets us to one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about, which emerges from a close reading of the book. One of the things about this book, in addition to it being just incredibly sparklingly written, really funny, really fascinating, um, just a really pleasant read, and as well as being a really informative read, one of the really striking things about the book is how carefully edited and tightly organized it is. And it's an exceptionally well-organized, well-argued, and well-arranged book. And it's sort of reading the, a product like that of an author always makes me wonder sort of what kinds of process, you know, went into this. How did this, how did the author sort of create this amazing and amazingly well-organized work? I think any of us who are working on any kind of extended writing project, be it a dissertation or an extended essay or a book, deal with issues of, you know, once we kind of have our inspiration and have our ideas, how to arrange the material that we're taking in, be it from an archive, from kind of secondary material, and make it into a kind of finished product that not just kind of reflects the work that we did, but also makes sense um, as a kind of sort of coherent object. So with that in mind, I, can you talk a little bit about the process that went into the book? How did you keep all of your materials and your thoughts organized? And, and I asked this also in particular, just hearing that it took you only a couple of years to write the book, which is amazing. So uh, um, can you talk a little bit about your process, about your working methods for producing the book? Sure. Uh, I have a, I, I feel like a fairly antiquated uh, method of note taking. It's not that I use note cards, although I did until about 10 years ago. Um, what I generally have are a series of files uh, open on the computer in which I type up my notes. And there's a bibliography at the front. Every time I read a new thing, I put the bibliography in and then I put it in the section of that open text file. So if it's, say, about creationism, I have archival material on creationism, then primary sources on creationism, secondary literature on creationism, etc. I have this uh, file set up and I just type in long, long extracts and quotations and notes from all of these books. So they already get pre-sorted into files uh, by the process of note-taking. And those files generally translate to a chapter or two chapters. So by the time that file gets really, really full, which is around 200 pages of single-spaced notes, that translates to roughly 40 pages double-spaced of a chapter. 
Uh, so there's way more note taking than actually makes it into something. But uh, by overtaking notes, uh, I find it gives uh, the possibility of choosing levels of texture for uh, a chapter. But uh, when I want to write an individual chapter, often that's very easy to do because I have this stack of 200 pages of notes. I print it out which is, I know, bad for the environment, but this is how I happen to work. And I read through it carefully with a pen in hand, and I annotate my notes with marginal notes. Then those annotated notes make it into the outline, along with me retranscribing, not cutting and pasting, all of the quotations from my notes. That economizes on the use of long quotes. And so then I have basically a really long document, which has all the footnotes already in it. So the chapter is organized as if with the footnotes first in the right order. And then I write prose to link all the quotes together. So it's, it's already segmented and compartmentalized, which is a product of how the book, uh, of how the note-taking system generates the book. Okay. So, that That's completely awesome. Sorry, go on. Uh, there, there's another feature, which I didn't mention about how I kind of fell into this book. I taught a course cause I'm obsessed with this demarcation problem about, uh, it was just called pseudoscience and it was taught to the undergraduates here. And we did a different case each week and we went backwards in time. We started with creationism and then we went backwards to astrology and the Renaissance. And the point of that class was to show them that the category of pseudoscience only emerges at a certain point in historical time. And so we know what it is now we think, but people in the Renaissance think of astrology as just another way of exploring the heavens. So at some point along the way, the category, as we go through the course, as we go backwards in time, the category vanishes. And the point of the course was to teach them that. An editor uh, somewhere heard that I taught this course and said, what would be great is if we had a book on pseudoscience, one where you put a book together with chapters about each one and wrote a historical account. And I said, well, I think that's going to be hard to do because I don't think there's a single thing called pseudoscience, which I expect we're going to talk about a little. Uh, But I'll look into it. So I'd started creating these tubs already of different fields and thinking about them. I knew Velikovsky at this point was already going to be part of it. He was going to be a chapter. And then I was having a conversation with a student, a graduate student, and he said, well, what chapters are you thinking about including in this thing if you decide to do it? And I said, well, there's going to be one about this, and this is the timeline on what that happens. And this is the timeline on eugenics. And this is the timeline on creationism. And this is the timeline on Velikovsky. And it turns out they had the same timeline. Just about everything happened in the late 40s, early 50s for the first big rupture. And the second big rupture was late 60s, early 70s on just about all of them. And that made me think, wait, this isn't actually a book about separate things. It's a book about one single conversation that's happening on the fringes of establishment science. So those tubs became very important for me figuring out the argument of the book. The structure of the note taking ended up uh, keeping the story separate long enough for me to figure out how they actually interwove. That's great. And is that a, a kind of process that you use for other books as well, or is that specific to this one? Uh, it, the, the, this process of having the separate tubs where I throw random facts in is pretty general because I get, I get fairly bored doing the same exact thing all the time, which is a problem if you're trying to write a book. So what I try to do is write a book where each chapter is quite different, or at least has a different secondary literature base and primary source base, so that if I get really, really sick of talking of reading about eugenics, I can read about UFOs instead. And uh, that way I can, it's still working on the same book, I'm just building up different components of it at a time. 
And so for um, before we get into the actual meat and potatoes of the book, which is super exciting and involves universes that are permeated with blue material that links the planets together and causes orgasms and all kinds of fun stuff. But before we get into that stuff, um, that, that's uh, I think these issues of methodology are actually kind of really interesting and really important. I do something similar, but I use a program called Scrivener. So for listeners out there who are thinking about this in relation to their own methodology, um, there are lots. This, I think this is a conversation that we could have many, many, many more hours. And thank you uh, for sharing. And I, and I would love to know about how that kind of stuff works for a separate conversation between us later, totally. just because uh, it was a while before I adopted PowerPoint and Keynote, but that's actually transformed the way I think about organizing things now. So this would be very helpful. So advertisement for a putative future podcast, including Michael Gordon <laughs> and me and others, methods of organization and the historian's craft, dot, 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 coming soon. But this happens to be one of those things you're actually interested in researching. Right. So I can understand why it's potential, particularly uh, poignant for you. But so let's talk about what's particularly poignant for you because this, um, and let's get into the book itself. So the, the first sentence of the book itself, and as, as I mentioned, um, it's a very sparklingly written book. And one of the really notable things about it is that each of the chapters opens up, or most of the chapters open up with this really powerful, short, punchy sort of statement sentence. And the first sentence of the book is, no one in the history of the world has ever self-identified as a pseudoscientist. Boom, right out there. Now, even though this is a book that is ostensibly, um, you know, it's, there's pseudoscience in its title, it's ostensibly about pseudoscience, it's actually not ultimately, you know, at its base necessarily about pseudoscience. Um, and one of the reasons I, I mention this is that pseudoscience, as you mentioned early in the book, is not really kind of a thing. It's, it doesn't really have a kind of content. In fact, you, you say it's, it's an epithet. It's a term of abuse, but it's a term without any real content. So let's start off before we get to the universes full of blue goo and, and et cetera, et cetera, and the dancing dragons in the heavens. Let's start off by talking about this category. Um, what Can you say a little bit about the nature of how you think about pseudoscience as a practice, as a sort of term of, uh, that we can work with that has been worked with and how that motivates, um, your interest and your arguments in the book. Uh, sure. This is, uh, one of the things that led to the failure of that attempt to write a book on pseudoscience, but it, it, thinking it through the process of writing just a book about various pseudosciences. And I'm, I have scare quotes in my mind when I say that, uh, was that it gave me clarity that, uh, such a book can't be written in a coherent way. And the reason why is because the, the term is, I like to think of it as an empty category. Um, so people think when they call someone a pseudoscientist or say that doctrine is pseudoscience, that they're describing some essence of the theory itself. Um, and there are two ways I could imagine that being true. One is the person who does it says, I am a pseudoscientist and this is the doctrine I believe in. But that never happens. There, there's no one who says, I am an astrologer which is complete crap and is absolutely fake, but I devote all this time to it because that's what I do. Everybody who adheres to one of these doctrines that other people think are pseudoscientific thinks they're producing knowledge. That is uh, approach one. So So you can't identify it with a person's essence themselves because everybody who you might think is a pseudoscientist doesn't think that of themselves. So it's not a self-identified category. The other option, which is the philosopher's option that was pursued for a long time, is that there might be a set of criteria that differentiate theories that are pseudoscientific from theories that are not. 
and that we can figure out reliable knowledge from non-reliable knowledge with some epistemological criterion or set of criteria. Uh, the most famous one of this, and I hear about it all the time when I talk about this, is Karl Popper's Doctrine of Falsifiability. Um, you probably hear this too from students. Uh, certainly I do when I try to teach Freud to people. Um, the general idea of that, as many listeners probably know, is uh, a theory is, according to Karl Popper, pseudoscientific if it is makes statements that are not falsifiable. That doesn't mean that they're false. No one wants to make false statements. But that doesn't make statements that, if checked, could potentially produce a negative result. So if what you say is the moon, the moon is made of green cheese is a perfectly falsifiable statement because someone could go to the moon, sample it, and see if it's made of green cheese. And if they find that, then it's falsifiable. If the person then says, no, no, actually, when green cheese comes into contact with humans, it turns into rock. So you actually can't test my green cheese idea uh, because what you've just shown to me is that the thing that was once green cheese has turned into rock. That is a non-falsifiable statement. So for Popper, this is easy. Theories that have tests in them are potentially scientific. They could be wrong, but they're candidates. And theories that don't have these falsifiable statements are bunk, pseudoscience. That's the way to solve the demarcation problem, he thinks. For a bunch of reasons, I don't think this works. Um, and the uh, introduction of the book goes into those. So we're stuck. We can't identify pseudoscience with a person, and we can't identify it with a set of criteria, logical, etc. So we're left – one way to approach this then is say, well, pseudoscience is a terrible category and we shouldn't use it because it doesn't actually signify anything. It has no the, – the term has no meaning. If you looked it up in a dictionary, there would be no definition after it because it has no meaning. And this is an attitude a lot of uh, historians of science actually pushed me on when uh, I told them I was writing a book about pseudoscience. They said, well, but pseudoscience isn't a real thing. It's just a term of abuse. And my view, and this is, I think, the third point of view, which is what I think the book is uh, the strongest argument I'm trying to make in the book, is that the fact that something is contentless and used only as a term of abuse is not a reason not to investigate it. Uh, people don't call every theory they think wrong pseudoscience. They call certain theories at that, and they call them that at certain times. So it turns out that this term of abuse, following when people decide to use it and how they label it to certain people and which people they affix it to, tells us a lot not about the person so labeled, but tells us a great deal about what the scientific community at the time thinks its standards and its status is. So I think the empty category can be uh, very usefully followed as a marker of social meaning, even if it's not full of epistemological goodness. Great. And the book actually, on the heels of, or perhaps not on the heels of, but it follows the emergence and the transformation of one cat or one context in which um, pseudoscience emerged as a sort of a feature Fight. of discourse. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I think I'm going to so okay, sorry. so basically, um, the, the, there's a main protagonist here in the story, and there's a main sort of character that we follow throughout as we look at these transformations, and that is Emanuel Velikovsky. This is this Russian-born psychoanalyst that I mentioned. So in order to understand what happens next, we have to understand a little bit about who he is and why he's central. So could you start us off um, along or down that road by saying a little bit about Velikovsky? Who is he and why is he so important to the story? Um, so Velikovsky is a name that uh, pretty much I really have found maybe 
almost no one under 50 who actually knows who he is. Carla, did you know who he was before he- reading this I book? I did not. Okay, so uh, you, you're, you fall in the sample set. There are about three people who do. Um, and I was also in this category of not knowing who he was. It turns out he was a household name from about 1950 to 1980. He died in 1979 um, at a very advanced age. Um, he published a book in 1950 called Worlds in Collision which sold incredibly well in 1950 and kept selling well through the 70s and is still available and in print today. Uh, so it had this wave of hardcover sales and then this wave of paperback sales and was extremely broadly read by people in many different fields and by a lot of lay people who were not scholars at all. The scholars who read it didn't like it much. But this book uh, became a publishing scandal and then became a touchstone for people to argue that Perhaps Velikovsky was right in his central claims, or at least onto something, and that he was being suppressed uh, by an establishment that didn't want to hear alternative views, basically that he was a latter-day Galileo. And uh, as a result, certain people, largely students, younger generations, or people uh, from outside the main walks of academic science, started mobilizing behind Velikovsky and promoting his ideas. He would lecture on college campuses around the country. There are editorials and op-eds about him periodically every few years in all the major newspapers. And when he died in 1979, he was, uh, the obituaries appeared in every single major newspaper. He is, he was a figure of that time period. And what he was a figure of was uh, one person called him one of the grand old men of American pseudoscience. What he was famous for was being a pseudoscientist. That was his claim to fame. And so if you want to look at how this term of abuse gets affixed onto certain doctrines, you could look at a doctrine like parapsychology, which uh, – so ESP research in the 30s was considered somewhat plausible. Perhaps we could find it. And as people in the field started doing research on it, and then it became fringed out, I would say, and labeled pseudoscientific. Velikovsky never had that moment. He was born pseudoscientific. As soon as Worlds in Collision was published, he was considered a crackpot, labeled a crank, a pseudoscientist, and stayed that way for good. So he becomes a very good test case to see how the epithet is applied and applied over and over again over decades. Great. Now, you mentioned earlier, and you mentioned early in the book, that one of your major kind of archives for, for writing the book and for investigating this history and Velikovsky's history in particular was his personal archive at Firestone Library at Princeton University. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of, of using that archive to anchor the story? Sort of what were some of the um, major kind of opportunities that that posed for you, but also what were some of the challenges um, that you faced along the way with that? Uh, so it's a great question. And, uh, I, I've gotten, I, I, when I started formulating the project, this was one of the areas where I felt least comfortable and got a lot of pushback. So on the one hand, I, so I started reading his stuff because I found out that they had the archive. So I went to go look at it and what it is is 65 linear feet of personal papers. It's gigantic. It's a very large amount of stuff. Uh, so I, when I'm filtering through it, I realize it's not just stuff. This isn't just a collection of papers that's produced. No archive is really all archives are generated by something. So the archive of the department of defense is generated by the department of defense's administrative structures and has a particular shape. This one has a very different shape than anyone I'd seen before because it wasn't built to be a repository of information. It was built to be a weapon. He built this thing, collected these papers to prosecute 
his place in history. So after publishing Worlds in Collision, and as it gets reviled, he would collect all of the hate mail, all of the negative reviews, as well as all of his fan mail. And he would copy parts of it and mail it to different people. He would cite from people's past letters in response to future letters. He would circulate them among his acolytes and followers. And he used this stuff to prosecute his case that he believed he was right. And not only did he believe he was right, he believed future historians and scientists would vindicate him. And then historians of science would look through his papers and be able to document the nefarious activities of those who suppressed him in 1950 and later. So the he actually actively used this archive through all of his living days in order to make his case for himself. And it's organized that way. So uh, you can see in the documents notations about what he used various things for, when he answered this, when he answered that. Um, he had different kinds of correspondence with publishers than he has uh, with uh journals and magazines that are writing about him. He has drafts and manuscripts for future books he wants to write, many of which he does write during his lifetime, but some of which are still unpublished. So this entire archive is a map almost of his mind and his way of viewing the world. So when you, you have to be aware that's what it's for. So you, this is a place where reading a lot of South Asian history I found very helpful, where you use an archive that's created for one purpose, say, disciplining natives to war another purpose uncovering people's everyday lives but this was an archive that was built for uh proving that belikovsky was right and i tried to read it at an angle so i could figure out how the belikovsky affair unfolded but do it from the bottom up from his point of view as it's folding so i tried to use it in a way that he didn't necessarily think it could be used but he kept all this material, including some extremely pejorative stuff that makes me think that he didn't sanitize it at all because he thought of this as a, a monument to the future and to his eventual correctness. Thank you. So a lot of the Velikovsky affair centers on um, one particular work that you introduce in the first chapter, and that goes on to be a touchstone for the rest of the chapters of the book. And this is a work called Worlds in Collision. Now, the, this is a work that posited um, the in world history that there were physical upheavals of a global character in historical times, as I think mm -hmm. you put it, that these catastrophes were caused by extraterrestrial agents and that these agents could be identified. So the book itself, and this is one of the um, sort of the anchors of the kinds of disagreements that we'll see uh, later on in later chapters, the book itself posits that there were two major global catastrophes in particular. One happened around 1500 BC, and this was caused by a comet that had been like ejected from Jupiter, almost hit the Earth, and eventually stabilized and became the planet Venus. And the yes. other... The other happened in the 8th century BC, and that actually changed the length of the year from 360 to 365 and a quarter days. Phew. Okay. Yes, so you, got that, you got that absolutely right. Okay. So, well, well it's because your book is so clear. Um, so getting that out of the way, one of the really striking things um, for listeners will be that these are probably pretty dramatic um, kinds of claims that involve all kinds of ways of thinking about what history is, what evidence is, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll actually get into that later on in the book. But one of, but what's so fascinating 
um, about what you're demonstrating in the first chapter is that the kind of dramatic and dramatic negative reaction toward this book and toward claims in it that was raised by scientists was not actually ultimately about the argument of the book. It was ultimately about the publisher that had decided to take the book on. So because this actually gets us toward issues of demarcation, this gets us toward issues of peer review, and, and these are some of the issues that you mentioned really spurred your interest in the project in the first place. Can you talk about that? Um, what, what about the publisher that decided to print the book really was uh, the source of this ire? And what does that um, tell us for how we understand this uh, point in this history? Um, sure. I, I should say, by the way, your summary uh, was fantastic of the catastrophe, but uh, it's very hard and I couldn't do it either in the book. To sum- The book itself is one, Woes and Collision is one long argument. And anytime you summarize it, you distort it in some way. And I did some of that. And so if people are actually curious about the argument, of the book. It's a fantastic read, and I strongly recommend reading Worlds in Collision. You will understand both why people found it compelling and why at the time people found it objectionable. Uh, it really comes forth from the prose. But this issue of the publisher is, I think, central. Um, and often um, when a, a theory is proposed that certain scientists find objectionable, even, say, choose to label it as pseudoscience, not just incorrect science, but as completely other altogether. Um, We think about that as mostly about the content of the doctrine. And the content of the doctrine surely matters, because they can't just label anything that. But what was particularly galling to the scientists reacted the way they did in 1950 is that it was published by Macmillan Press, which uh, is still around. It's the publisher of Nature, for example. Um, And it was the most prestigious science publisher in the U S and what they were particularly prestigious about uh, was publishing excellent textbooks for science education at all levels, graduate and undergraduate in particular. And this book was published by Macmillan actually by their trade division, uh, not by their science textbook division. Although in one of the advertising flyers, they actually listed it as a science book, which caused some problems, but Macmillan published this book, Scientists read about the book. Very few of them actually at first read the book, but they heard about the book and they said, there's no way this book received due diligence. There's no way it was peer reviewed. Nothing with this crazy argument could possibly be published that way. And therefore, this press seems unreliable. It's like they're doing something that's not – they're not adhering to the standards that we rely on them to adhere to in order to produce really good other work. So what – what we're going to do then is uh, try and persuade the press to let go of this book. When I put it that way, it sounds gentle. The kinds of mail they got, not that many letters, but when they got them, they were quite pointed, said that this ruins your reputation with us. no longer want to read any books or assign any books or referee any books or submit any manuscripts to you because we no longer think you're a reliable publisher. And so the what, what hinges on this debate is uh, a way in which the scientists see the press as theirs and as performing very important demarcation functions for them by filtering material. And if they're not filtering properly, it casts everything else in question. And that's I argue one of the reasons they mobilize so strongly around uh, the issue of the press's reliability. Of course, they're wrong. The book was actually peer-reviewed. It's just that the standard of what counts for peer review uh, was much more flexible than it is today. 
Right. And I think one of the really interesting um, things about the book is that you act, you do, I won't ask you about this now, but you come back in the concluding chapter of the book to look again at the issue of peer review in the larger um, context of understanding pseudoscience and demarcation and um, really kind of help us, I think, think more critically about the, uh, the kind of work that peer review does and put that next to a history of assumptions by other actors about the kind of work that peer review does or the kind of work that peer review should do. So the book ultimately finds a home or the rights um, are transferred to Doubleday. And as we move into the rest of the chapters of your book, the sort of the unfolding nature of Velikovsky's arguments and the kinds of ways that um, this story becomes a story that's not really just about the sciences or um, the engagement by scientists really comes to the fore. Now in chapter two, we really get a sense of Velikovsky as a historian. And in fact, he describes himself at one point as a historian, not a scientist, to a Harvard student radio broadcast right in the 70s. But as we're here um, in this work, the chapter looks at um, actually Velikovsky's account of the hostile scientific reaction to the book and it sort of explores the ways that the kind of evidence that he marshaled and the kind of arguments that he made in the book um, really sort of came to or came from kinds of sources that and kinds of threads in his own intellectual history that may not at all be obvious to listeners just from hearing about what the book was about, right, in our sort of initial discussion. So these two um, threads of historical evidence that I want to ask you about, and the two main threads that are the focus of this chapter, are the thread of Jewish history and the thread of psychoanalysis. And both of these are crucial to what happens in Worlds in Collision. So I'll ask you to talk about these in turn. Can you say a bit about the issue of Jewish history? It's, it was central to the way he came to this project in the first place, to the way he thought about this project. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, I can. I, I hope. I wonder if I can separate it from psychoanalysis because they are, you separate, you're absolutely right, they're separable, but intellect, historically, it's hard to tease them apart, which is. I think one of the challenging things about him. So sure. um, in, in Collision, the evidence is reading ancient legends and myths about stuff that happened in the heavens. So when people say rains of fire, pillar of cloud, earthquakes, um, that's read as a hallucination or an exaggeration of something that happened. Like no one really believes glowing chariots were moving across the heavens with the story of um uh, Phoebus, uh, or the, or the, the story of um, well, there are many stories. Athena and Ares fighting in the heavens over the plains of Troy in the Iliad. It's not real. And Velikovsky says all that stuff is real, and he based on reading these historical accounts, these legendary accounts, which are part of historical evidence of the past. The most important piece of historical evidence about the past is the Hebrew Bible, specifically not Genesis, but from Exodus onward through the prophets. So the four, the latter four books of Moses and the Torah, and then the J- Joshua judges all those other books. And he thinks those are an accurate, reasonably accurate rendition of the history of the Jewish people. Velikovsky was extremely committed to the history of the Jewish people. He was born in Vitebsk to a, uh, uh, educated Zionist family. He ends up eventually emigrating from what becomes the Soviet Union via Berlin to Tel Aviv when it, mandate Palestine. And he uh, sees the story of the place of the Jewish people history as extremely important. And when he 
uh, reads through other myths and figures out a way in which they can be read as confirming the historical account in um, the books of Moses and and the Isaiah and the prophets later, that's an enormously persuasive argument for him, that a Jewish history is an accurate depiction of the history of the world writ large. And you can see that by correlating the scientific claims to the other mythological evidence, to the Egyptian evidence at the same time period, or what he believes is the same time period, because he has an unconventional dating structure. So whereas most establishment historians think that there's a lot of omissions and distortions in the historical account in the Hebrew Bible, he doesn't. And so his Zionism and his particular attitude toward the place of the Jewish history is a strong motivating force for why he gives certain pieces of evidence huge amounts of credence. Uh, that's the uh, that's the Jewish history part. Does that get what you were thinking? Yep, yep. Okay. The psychoanalysis part is related. Um, Velikovsky decided he was uh, trained as a physician in Ru- in, the, in Russia uh, before it was the Soviet Union, and then uh, when he settled in Palestine, he does a bit of that, but he mostly manages real estate investments. His parents, who were quite wealthy, had uh, set up in Tel Aviv. Um, and he decide, he says this in his uh, unpublished memoirs. He says, uh, in the late 20s, my mother died, and immediately I wanted to become a psychoanalyst. It's totally deadpan. I don't think he sees that as at all related. Um, but he decided to go and study in Vienna. He studies mostly with a man named Wilhelm Steckel, uh, who is a, a competitor slash colleague slash associate of Freud and is very excited about psychoanalysis and sets up a psychoanalytic practice back in Tel Aviv. And then uh, Freud's last book comes out and he reads it immediately. It comes out in 38, 39. Uh, and that's Moses in Monotheism, which uses psychoanalytic arguments to make a case about the historical Moses, arguing that Moses was not a Hebrew. He was, in fact, an Egyptian priest from Akhenaten's sun worship monotheistic religion who took the slave people, gave them his Egyptian religion. And then they uh, fled uh, out of Egypt and at a certain point later murdered Moses because they hated the strictures he had imposed on them. So Everything about this offended Velikovsky, the argument that it's not a tochthonous religion of the Jewish people themselves, but in fact an uh, interloper religion, the fact that Moses, the father of the faith, was murdered, um, and the, it's extra galling that he, Velikovsky, an admirer of psychoanalysis, saw psychoanalytic dream work methods being used to make this case. So in 1939, he uh, took a sabbatical to... Uh, meaning took a year off with his family to New York to work in the libraries there to write a refutation of Moses' monotheism. And what ends up coming out of that is worlds in collision, weirdly enough. So this connection of Jewish history and psychoanalysis emerges into this book, which makes these arguments about Venus. Great. Task chapter. Great. So, uh, so after we sort of set this up in the chapter, the chapter continues to really put flesh on the bones of this picture of Velikovsky as a historian by looking at some of the other projects he was also engaged in. These include um, a project that posits the kind of unconventional chronology that I think you were referring to. He um, posits a kind of missing 600 years or six ghost centuries in the Egyptian chronology that need to be just taken out. Um, He writes also an interpretation of Genesis in a work called In the Beginning that posits, among other things, that the 
deluge was caused after the planet Saturn exploded, that the Tower of Babel was actually a sort of a case of mercury that sort of has this massive electric electrical discharge and wipes out the memories of the survivors, etc., etc. So there's really, really sort of interesting ways of rewriting history that are coming out in the larger context of Velikovsky's work. So why was the reaction to these ideas in the scientific community so intense? Well, that's uh, the answer to that and an elaboration of that kind of what that means as a question is what we get as we move to the next chapter. Why did people care so much? Why were the arguments so vehement? This brings us back to the Cold War context in which this story is unfolding. And in as a way of explaining sort of why the reaction among American scientists was so intense, you bring us into the ways that the story is actually engaged with and intimately interwoven with the story of another figure who becomes associated with what we might call pseudoscience, and that's Trofim Lysenko. Um, so what I want to ask you about is uh, sort of not to necessarily you know, have, explain in detail what the Lysenko affair was, but to sort of, can you kind of briefly talk about what that was and um, talk about why or in what ways this informed the reaction of American scientists to the case of Velikovsky? And I ask this um, sort of because you signal in here something really interesting, which is that ultimately that what connected the two was an issue of the tactics it's not necessarily about content. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Lysenko, how that informs um, American scientists' reaction to uh, Velikovsky, and then how this is ultimately an issue of tactics and not necessarily content. Sure, I'll try to be quick about this. <laughs> or uh, take, so, take your time. Take as much time as you need. So uh, uh, Trofim Lysenko was an agronomist in the Soviet Union. He basically grew up within the Soviet context. Um, who had a theory of heredity that argued basically an inheritance of acquired characteristics. And he proposed this as a way of thinking that was not based on Mendelian genetics. Mendelian genetics in the 1920s and early 30s was extremely strong in the Soviet Union. It, was, it, it along with the United States, were world centers of genetic research, especially in agriculture. In the 30s, there's a vibrant debate between the Velikovskians and another, uh, sorry, the Lysenkoists and the non-Lysenkoists, uh, the geneticists. When I say Lysenkoists, I'm using our term for them. They called themselves something else. They called themselves maturinists. But since most of my discussion will be about America, uh, the Americans always call them Lysenkoists. So they have this fight back and forth. There's a lot of dirty playing. It turns out that the leading geneticist is arrested. Um, in part because uh, Lysenko makes a strong case that his kind of biology is substantially more Marxist than uh, genetics is, and that genetics is reactionary. And there's evidence based on the world eugenics movement, especially as it's manifesting itself horribly in Germany, that this, there's some plausibility to this claim. But the, it, during World War II, hostilities cease a little bit, and then in 1948, uh, Lysenko gives a speech to a Congress of agriculturalists, of which he is the president, where he says that Joseph Stalin, the head of the Soviet Union, has authorized his particular doctrine of heredity as correct biology and that genetics is reactionary. This basically for 15 years criminalizes the research in genetics in the Soviet Union. Stuff still does happen, usually protected by nuclear physicists, but for the most part, genetics is illegal and the state has enshrined a particular doctrine which Western scientists think is incorrect. So uh, 
this is a very traumatic Stalin's uh, endorsement of Lysenko is extremely traumatic uh, to biologists around the world. And in the U S there's, I, I track in this chapter, two different, uh, the two people, uh, Leslie Dunn at Columbia and, uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky, who's also at Columbia, both geneticists. Dobzhansky's often in Brazil doing field work in this period, so they keep a correspondence going. Um, I track their interactions before 1948 about Lysenko and after 1948. Before 1948, they think Lysenko is really wrong, and they want to figure out a way to help the geneticists in the Soviet Union argue against Lysenko and avert something like what eventually happens, a political endorsement of Lysenkoism. So, uh, that's what, uh, ends. So, so they decide what they're going to do is translate Lysenko, one of Lysenko's works into English, arrange for reviews to discuss it and to demonstrate why it isn't science. Mm -hmm. They can do that in a kind of peaceful, non-belligerent way. Say, this is not a good scientific claim. This is incorrect science. They want to treat it as wrong science. After 1948, they change their tactics completely. They uh, consider the political intervention into the field has made Lysenkoism pseudoscientific in a very qualitatively different way than uh, the previous just incorrect aspects of Lysenkoism made it. So uh, they mobilize in a different way. There's a very different language that's used. And I argue in the book that this 1948 rupture uh, – is read as a lesson by many American scientists, especially liberal American scientists who had been not uniformly hostile to the Soviet Union, that you can't just let cranks be. They're not harmless. Mm -hmm. Earlier theory was, well, yeah, he's wrong, but we can show he's wrong and he's, he's dangerous, but he's not really dangerous. After 1948, they look dangerous. People get arrested because of Lysenko in the Soviet Union. Vavilov, his former antagonist, dies, although that's before 1948, in a prison camp. So it's actu there's actual stakes. And that, I argue, conditions the way um, uh, scientists looking, living in Cold War America think about tolerating or indulging fringy theories. And Velikovsky just walks into this context. That happens in 48, 48 and 49 is the reaction. And at the very beginning of 1950, Velikovsky's book starts getting advertised. And it, he ends up being picked up as an object lesson of what's wrong with uh, certain kinds of doctrines, why fallacious doctrines are bad. And he gets held up as an exemplar pseudoscientist. I argue it's kind of an aftershock of the Lysenko affair in the United States. It's not that they think that Lysenko is going to – that Velikovsky will become an American Lysenko and that he will be taught in the schools and that regular astronomy will be banned. No one thinks that. But they think that he is, uh, he is a crank and a crank can be dangerous. And I wanted to historicize that moment uh, very specifically. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so as we move into the last uh, three chapters of the book, one of the things that starts happening that's really, really interesting is that we start seeing the ways that Velikovsky is actually adopting the methods of the people whose, or some kinds of methods and tactics of the people whose respect and whose support he's trying to garner in order to both try to sort of persuade scientists to take his argument seriously, but also in later chapters, how he's 
trying to kind of adapt the methods that have been used against him in order to create his own or a kind of orthodoxy for his own field, which we might think of as French, right? So right. we get some really interesting um, discussions in the next chapters of his methodologies and the way these are bound up with his own kind of demarcation problem, really interestingly. Chapter four looks at the ways that he attempted to persuade, again, scientists to, to take his scientific arguments seriously. And he does this in three major ways. He does this by seeking the endorsement of respected scholars in the field. He does this by finding new kinds of evidence to bolster his reconstruction. And he does this by emphasizing in a new way predictions, the importance of confirmed predictions of the kinds of findings that he um, made evident in Worlds in Collision. Now, one of the things that comes out of this chapter that's really interesting and perhaps surprising that gets at this first way that he's trying to garner respect is that he has this relationship, this kind of odd sort of relationship with Albert Einstein, right? Can yes. you talk a little bit about that in, in this context? Sure. Um, Einstein and Velikovsky had weirdly enough met in the 1920s uh, in Berlin as part of a project, publishing project Velikovsky had, but Einstein seemingly forgot about it. Uh, while uh, Velikovsky was working on Worlds in Collision, he kept trying to get Einstein interested, and Einstein ignored these letters. But then after the book is published, two years later in 1952, Velikovsky moves to Princeton, where his daughter is in graduate school. Uh, daughter's husband is in graduate school in physics here. Um, and he runs into Einstein and he approaches Einstein and Einstein's extremely hostile because he thinks of Velikovsky as this ranting pseudoscientist. But over time, uh, not much time, but about six months go by and Velikovsky ends up becoming invited to Einstein's house to visit. They meet they talk in German. They talk about all sorts of things. Einstein loved speaking in German and he didn't have many people to whom he would speak it in the U.S. because he refused after the war to speak German to most Germans. Um, so he, he, he and Velikovsky have uh, interesting interactions, which it's hard to know what Einstein thinks of them. But Velikovsky sees them as Einstein getting more and more persuaded of Velikovsky's point of view. And you see moments where Einstein says things, at least in Velikovsky's recounting and in some of Einstein's letters, that seem encouraging. And that goes on for a bit, and then Einstein kind of freaks out and sort of yells at Velikovsky, and then they start over again. This kind of periodic process, which seems to me very characteristic of Einstein's temperament and also characteristic of how many people dealing with people they perceive as fringe would act. And uh, this relationship goes on. They meet about every couple of weeks, once a month, once every other month, until, Veliko until Einstein's death in 1955. And uh, for Velik Velikovsky, Einstein, the relationship with Einstein is really important for him thinking, uh, first of all, that he can get an endorsement from Einstein maybe to help uh, solidify his views because he wants to be made respectable in the mid-50s. He wants back into that community that rejected him. Uh, and secondly, uh, Einstein pushes Velikovsky to think about his theory in terms of predictions, because predictions are really important for how scientists get persuaded of controversial ideas, much as Einstein's relativity was confirmed by various bold predictions. And given that it's the dawn of the space age and there are probes out there exploring the, the solar system, Velikovsky makes certain predictions about the nature of the solar system, which turn out to be correct. 
That is, he says Venus will be warm. Venus is warm. He says uh, Jupiter ought to emit radio noises, even though it's cold, and it does. And those become arguments that Velikovsky uses to say, I should be made respectable. I should be rehabilitated because I am making these predictions and they turn out to be correct. So it, 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 Einstein is the kind of core of Velikovsky's attempt to get himself rehabilitated into the good graces of the scientific community that have rejected him at the beginning of the decade. Awesome. It doesn't work. <laughs> right. It doesn't work, but it's a really interesting part of the story. So one of the, another thing that you do in this chapter is that you're showing here, even though, uh, or you're showing how, even though Velikovsky probably didn't consciously know he was doing this, or it may not have known about what was happening with Frederick Osborne um, and the history of eugenics in the U.S., you're showing sort of ways that the history of eugenics in the U.S., and in particular of the rehabilitation of the American Eugenics Society, informed and sort of helps us think about what happened with Velikovsky, because Velikovsky turns out to apply sort of many of the same moves that Osborne had done in Osborne's own quest to rehabilitate um, eugenics and make it more part of the scientific mainstream. Now, this is one of a few points in the book where you're showing, I think, really nicely the engagement between um, with I mean, without being sort of um, heavy-handed about it, you're showing the engagement between uh, this particular kind of pseudoscience that we associate with Velikovsky and other major moments in this larger story of Cold War American science that also get bound up in this larger story, eugenics being one of them, creation science being another. And the next chapter takes us into um, the relationships between Velikovsky's work and that of scholars who worked on what's come to be known as creation science, among other things. And one of the things the chapter does is sort of show the emergence of that category creation science as a thing. Now, the chapter in doing this looks at problems that are involved in setting up what you call an orthodoxy on the fringes, right? An orthodoxy right. in the case of Velikovsky pseudoscience. And it's really, really interesting. It looks at the sort of comparison and the relationship between Velikovsky and creationism to sort of to, to look at the larger idea of what counts as legitimacy on the fringe. A major point here is that um, you argue when it's impossible to gain legitimacy from established scientists, as we saw Velikovsky trying to do in the previous chapter with Einstein, etc., and ultimately failing to do, it becomes then really important to maintain authority in your own camp. Right. So, um, so what um, what I want to ask you to do is to talk about this relationship between Velikovsky um, and um, the creationists, sort of in general. And I use that in scare quotes for all kinds of reasons. Yes. Right? Uh, um, as it shapes this story, sort of what what are some important moments in this story that go on to shape the way we ought to understand Velikovsky and his own attempt to create an orthodoxy on the margins? So, uh, when rehabilitation fails. Like when you can't get legitimacy from the mainstream scientists, uh, what do you do next? Well, he's not going to throw up his hands and say, I'm a pseudoscientist, because remember, nobody has ever done that. He thinks he's pursuing knowledge. So he does what everybody who thinks they're pursuing knowledge does, which is follow what scientists do. And what scientists generally do is you develop a school of people who are interested in your theories and you start arguing for them. The problem of doing this in mainstream science, we know how that's done. You have students, you have journals, you have gatekeepers, grant agencies, etc. But how do you do that when you're marginalized? 
And it's especially dangerous to do this when you're marginalized because there are lots and lots of other people who have other theories that you're convinced are pseudoscientific. Belikovsky has a very robust notion of pseudoscience. It just doesn't apply to him. So he's convinced that creationists are loopy and they're completely wrong, especially about uh, the nature of the history of the earth. But they're especially dangerous because they use the Bible too, just in a different way than he does. So he has to work really hard to prevent Velikovsky, uh, prevent the creationists from assimilating him. And likewise, the creationists are trying to prevent Velikovsky from assimilating them. So on the fringe, everybody is trying to establish an orthodoxy and prevent even fringier people, from their own point of view, from twisting or distorting their doctrines. So there are many cases where uh, individual people who are attracted to Velikovsky's ideas want to, say, marry it to creationism and say, he's right about Venus and Mars, except it's about the flood, not about Exodus. Or people who say, and this is the blue goo of the universe <laughs> we talked about earlier, uh, that uh, Re Wilhelm Reich's theories about orgone, a blue substance that pervades the universe and is the source of orgasms as well as electricity, um, who try to link that to the cosmic trauma of the Venus catastrophe. Velikovsky wants no part of that because he needs to keep his doctrine pure if he's going to be able to keep it from dissipating away into a thousand different streams. And so, I, in that, just in, I just have to, I have to tell you that at that particular point in the book, I have this like large marginal scrawl that says "Whoa" with multiple uh, O's. It's just it, "Whoa." It's a, it's a really interesting theory, and uh, there are actually um, there's a book called "Adventures in the Orgasmatron" that came out <laughs> roughly around the same time my book did, which is about Reich's. Uh, theories, mostly not the orgone stuff, mostly about sexual liberation. Uh, and he's portrayed in that book as the intellectual progenitor of the, uh, of the sexual revolution of the 60s. But there's another person working on a book on uh, Reich's more uh, fringy theories, like the orgone theory, and it's very interesting. And Velikovsky hates it. Um, not because, like creationism, in the case of creationism, it's too close to him, but because he finds it kind of gross. Uh, and he also thinks that Reich was a, a bad psychoanalyst who uh, definitely had sex with his patients and did things you're not supposed to do. Uh, so for many reasons, Velikovsky is beset on all sides by people who want to take his theory and do something else with it. And in the next chapter, I also look at von Deniken's ancient astronauts theory that aliens came down and built the pyramids, etc. He hates that too, because it takes ancient astronomical data that he likes to use and evidence of catastrophes in the heavens that he likes to use and uses them for different purposes. So he is not just sitting there propagating his theory. He's propagating his theory and defending himself against all of these other people on the fringe. It's really crowded out there. <laughs> Now, and as you mentioned in the last chapter, this actually is a great um, opportunity to bring us into chapter six, which is the last body chapter before the conclusion. Now, this actually follows this story and looks at the ways that Velikovsky becomes embraced by a counterculture. And he, this happens through the sort of people on, in the counterculture explore, exploiting and exploring new forms of publicity from campus activism, college courses, to new journals that are devoted to Velikovskyanism or Velikovskyan works. But as you're showing here, the actual connection between those journals and Velikovsky himself is, is quite fraught in some of these cases. Yes. So, in, uh, Sorry, go on. 
No, yeah. So Velikovsky, again, wants to have followers because he wants to build almost a parallel scientific establishment for his theory. So he loves that he's being popularized and engaged with by all these students. But he also doesn't want it to become vulgarized. He doesn't want this doctrines to be changed or altered by all of these people who are interested in experimentation. So it's a real tension. Excitement that people are interested in you and horror that they might distort your theories. So navigating that is the story of the last 10 years or so of his life. And it's very difficult for him. Let's actually end, um, or at least end the, this kind of part of the conversation by talking a little bit about that. Cause I think that really nicely brings the story to a close after having succeeded in getting all of this attention. So I think you say in post 1968 America, he actually becomes one of the most popular authors read by college students. Yeah. He, in the mid seventies starts to withdraw from his engagement with this counterculture that's giving him so much support. So can you talk a little bit about that as a way of drawing our story of Velikovsky to a close? Sure. Um, he has amazing success in the late 60s and early 70s, but it comes to a crest in 1974. There are these journals that start popping up, propagating his views, and they sell 30,000 copies an issue. Uh, people are reading and engaging and writing about Velikovsky. And in a sense, it really works in 74 because he forces a showdown with the establishment, or as he interprets it, a showdown with the establishment. He, there's a special session at the American Association for the Advancement of Science on his theories. That is organized by several people, but the headliner is Carl Sagan, who tries to debunk Velikovsky's theories. And it's it's packed. The room is packed. It runs into an extra session in the evening. And this is kind of Velikovsky's grand moment. And there are many events like this in 1974 where he's being talked about everywhere. And it doesn't change anybody's mind. Uh Everybody just – the people who liked Velikovsky still like Velikovsky. The people who think he's horrible still think he's horrible. And uh, so he, he actually generated this big showdown and it didn't work. And at the same time, there's just a death by a thousand cuts, individual people picking at him, uh, trying to change his theory this way or that way. Try, the journals that are propagating him want to also propagate criticisms of him, and he doesn't like that either. And he starts to get – well, he's quite old at this time. He's born in 1895. So he's in his 80s, ill many, much of the time. His wife is also ill. And he's living uh, with all of these slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And he starts to withdraw to a set of acolytes he can trust. And from 1976 or so until he dies in 79, he's much more indrawn than he was in the early 70s. Um, the sort of the energy starts to sap out of the movement. And after he dies in 79, it basically dissipates. Thank you so much, Michael. Now, the, there's also a conclusion, and I'm not going to ask you about that, but I'll just mention for listeners, especially listeners who might be interested in the particular timeliness of the set of ideas, and that might be hearing about the Mayan calendar controversies and all these sorts of things that are coming to the fore now that it's December 2012, there's a concluding chapter that wraps up um, this story and also looks at the ways that these threads and these themes continue to influence and continue to sort of weave their way through contemporary discussions of pseudoscience and of the fringe. So, Michael, there's a ton of material in this book um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's extraordinarily rich. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover but that you'd like to point out for listeners, especially perhaps listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book? Uh 
I think just one thing, and you've been weaving this very nicely all the way throughout in our discussion. Uh, one of the, the big arguments in the book is that uh, the reason why we're never able to just get rid of these fringe movements is because they look like science in many ways outside of their theories. So uh, just like there's no list of criteria like falsifiability that you can check off and say this isn't actually science, this is something else. Likewise, when we say something like you need to have your own journals or you need to have peer review or you need to have acolytes, you need to have predictions, every time a standard like that gets put out, these people, precisely because they think they are scientists, meet those standards. Creationists have peer-reviewed journals. Velikovsky makes predictions. They do all of those things. And I interpret this in the conclusion as pseudoscience being not a substance in itself, but more like a shadow. It is something that is cast by science and looks like science in almost every way, quite deliberately. And it's, a, it's not an attack on science's status. It's a reflection of science's status. If people didn't think science was worth doing, they wouldn't be doing this stuff. So uh, it's, uh, I, I use that as a way of getting us to think a little differently about the process of debunking or other kinds of movements where people hope to eradicate these doctrines. I don't think we can eradicate them, but I don't think that's necessarily such a bad thing. And in fact, just based on the way you're describing this and based on what emerges from the book, it may not be possible to eradicate it, eradicate it because we can also think of science or orthodoxy itself as a reflection of the fringe, right? Orthodoxy, Absolutely. orthodoxy isn't orthodoxy unless there's a fringe. They sort of co-create each other. Yes, I think that's a that, that I wish I'd said that in the book that way. <laughs> well, you said a lot of wonderful things in the book, um, in wonderful ways, and and congratulations on its um, emergence. It's a wonderful book, um, and now I would love to know what you're doing next. Now that this is out, and again, congratulations on that. What's uh, inspiring you at the moment? What new projects are you working on? Uh, I'm actually in the middle of working on a book on the languages in which science is done. So this goes back to many of the older 19th century Russian interests, but uh, I'm following the history through many episodes, mostly in chemistry, of how we moved from a world in which, uh, Latin, uh, by world I mean Western world here, not East Asia, um, a world in which uh, Latin was the dominant language of scientific communication to a plethora of languages that then solidify into French, German, and English in the 19th century, the emergence of Russian as a minor partner in that, and then the rise of Russian and English in the Cold War and the eventual um, universality in English globally in sciences today. So how that how those changes happen, how that affects the lived experience of being a scientist in each of these epochs, and the possible implications of having a monoclot culture for world science today. Wonderful. Well, best of luck with that project, Michael. And thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.